0: welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend Ann Chavruta Yerdena Ozband, our DAF of the Day. Masachet Yevamot, DAF Kuf Yud Zion, 117. Um, 117 is a DAF of Mishnayot. 118 is a DAF of Mishnayot. We're going to be tag-teaming for these two day- days of uh, heavy-duty Mishnayot. Before we get to that, I want to give a pitch for the SIUM that is coming up July 10th 5 p.m. Israel time, 10 a.m. Eastern Seaboard of the United States. We have a guest speaker. We've been forecasting that we're going to maybe, hopefully, please God have a guest speaker. Rachel Stomel will be joining us. She is in the employee of the Center for Women's Justice in Israel and Jerusalem. And what they deal with primarily is really these kinds of cases of, certainly of Agunot, but also cases of yibum, cases of Mamzerut, all of these kinds of, you know the esoteric laws that we say oh that couldn't ever possibly happen and then lo and behold in the state of israel it can, it can possibly happen sometimes because there's issues with the rabbinut, with the chief rabbinate and um i don't mean the chief rabbinate like the organization that is the rabbinate i don't mean any of the individual rabbis um and this is the beit Din, like the how to deal how to deal with the halakha as it comes to the beit Din And then what the Center for Women's Justice often does is also employ the quote-unquote secular law within Israel to kind of try to adjudicate some of these more challenging cases. But leaving some of those solutions aside, one of the reasons Rachel will be speaking with us is simply to talk about these, you know, very, potentially very dramatic and sometimes harrowing cases that are real and live and fascinating and sometimes often terrible. Um, She is an old friend of mine. She is very articulate and funny and, you know, a a punchy speaker. So I think, you know, in terms of let's give her top billing, Yavamo has been a challenge and we'd like to see her, you know, bring it down to earth for us in this way. And I think, I hope and pray, you know, all of you will enjoy uh, her discussion of these kinds of cases as much as I do. Enjoy being a tricky term here when sometimes they're, as I say, they can pull at the heartstrings, these kinds of cases, but, But still, we need to know them because, you know, it very much is Yevamot come to life, or at least Yevamot encountering the beitin in real life.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And we can't wait to hear from her. All right, let's get started with our Mishnah here. So I'm actually starting on the bottom of Kup Tatzayan, where the Mishnah, another shows us another machlokus between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, similar to what we had yesterday, and again, we're going to see that Beit Hillel is going to concede to Beit Shammai. Beit Shammai Omrim tenase. So Beit Shammai says a woman who testifies that her husband died can get married, and she gets the money from her ketubah to her first husband. Beit Hillel Omrim tenase. she gets married below But she does not actually get her ketubah. And the reason for Beit Hillel's reasoning, as we'll see later on, is because that piece is sort of a monetary exchange and should require two witnesses. Amrulahem Beit Shammai. So Beit Shammai says to Beit chamura." you allow a potential forbidden relationship, right? That maybe she's still an a she's still a married woman. And that's very stringent. That's Hamur But you won't allow her to get her ketubah. You won't allow money, which is much more makeup, which is not as uh, a heavy halakha that you would be, you know, to be, uh, to allow. Amrulahem Beit Shammai. So Beit says, so Beit Illa says that's not a proof because we find that brothers don't come into an inheritance from a deceased brother based on her testimony. In other words, testimony is accepted, it seems, only in cases to forbid sexual, rel- to forbidden sexual relationships, but not with monetary matters. If there's an issue between brothers inheriting their brother's estate, you would need to have two witnesses. Amr laham bechamay counters and says, Baalomi safer ketubah mode, right? No, but we can learn the halacha from the actual scroll of the marriage contract itself. Because the husband writes to her in the ketubah, right? If you marry another man, take what is written for you in the contract. In other words, the contract, the marriage contract is constructed as such that she gets that contract even if she remarries. The Beit Hillel leharo kizibre Beit And so Beit Hillel is convinced and actually rules like Beit Shammai. And it's also interesting because this is one of those cases where Beit Shammai, who tends to be more machmir, tends to be stricter than Beit Hillel, was actually more lenient, and Beit Hillel actually acquiesces to Beit Shammai's opinion. So then uh, the Gemara is not that long on this Mishnah, but it's going to bring us back to Yibam, um, and basically says, right? So they want to know is that with Yibum, right? Can a woman uh, a woman enters into Yibum based on her testimony, and then the Avam basically gets the inheritance of the brother, and that's based on one witness. And so therefore he says, that she's entitled by sort of, you know, giving this nice interpretation to the language of the Ketubah. But he says, why didn't he just pay use yibum as an example that with monetary matters, we allow one witness? Because again, if we have one witness that allows her to enter into yibum, and then the Yabam gets the brother's inheritance, why couldn't that be proof in itself? Yakum al aviv. So Rav Hista explains, right? It says in Devarim chapter 25, verse 6, he shall get in the name of his brother. Baharekam, and he does. He gets anything through that marital, through that yibum relationship. He gets the inheritance as well. So, um, so I think what Rofkisa is making an explanation here. It's a little bit nuanced, but what he's saying is is that they only get the nahala if they enter into yibum. It's not based on the testimony, but it's based on the actual act of entering into yibum. And therefore, that's why this wouldn't have been a good proof for Beit Shammai to use. So that takes us through this first uh, Mishnah. Rav Nachman comes and gives a couple of other uh, comments about, you know, sort of language where someone emphasizes, I get my ketuba," versus, you know, my husband died. If it looks like she's out just for the money, then we don't allow her to have her ketuba. And with that, Anne, I will hand it off to you to the next Mishnah.
0: Okay. Uh, I would say that this next Mishnah is either a confirmation or a source and I'm saying this a little bit tug in cheek Let's say mother-in-law jokes. Everybody is deemed responsible, credible, right? You're going to believe their testimony, meaning if they're coming to give testimony about the death of a given woman's husband, except for, and then the list gives us five, but it begins with her mother-in-law, right? Except for her mother-in-law, Uvat chamotah, the daughter of the mother-in-law; vitzarata, the co-wife; Vivamta, the wife of the yavam. You know, understand where that's coming from, right? Uvat and the husband's daughter, meaning in the event of a stepdaughter. Now, there's some interesting discussion amongst the commentaries, right? Like, why are these people on this? Why are these five women on this case? Of you know, they are not believed if they come to give testimonial testimony, but the death of the woman's husband, and Ramban suggests that they were, that they're hated. They all hate her, meaning that they all hate their this man's wife. They want to kind of do her in, and therefore they'll give testimony that the person that they really care about, namely the husband, that he's dead in order to get her. So I understand that this makes for like, you know, really sharp daytime TV, but it's the kind of thing that you say, like, really, could this really be? And the answer is yes, it really could be that people kind of, you know, let's put it this way. They're not to be believed in giving testimony just in case their motivation is, you know, let's say out of hatred. There's another suggestion that it's not about hatred. It really could just be because they're what we would call Nogeya b'davar. They are they have a vested interest in the outcome of what happens. You know, let's say now we're going to deal with, a, um, you know, the dissolution of his property or. Or different kinds of inheritances, which, you know, maybe they want that inheritance, so to speak, they're gonna fight it out with the with the widow. Okay, the Mishnah goes on. Ma ben get limita. What's the difference between testifying that this man is dead? Or let's say, for example, the um if she shows up with a bill of divorce, right? The woman comes forward and she says, Hello, I've, you know seeing that my husband is dead, and now we're going to go on her testimony, or she's going to show up with a bill of divorce, which is fundamentally the same in terms of, like, now she should be able to go free and marry whoever, whomever. But the answer is no, because... The very fact that she's got a divorce, I mean, the bill of divorce with her, means that there's another, I, I want to say voice here, right? There's another... Um, source to the fact that this divorce has taken place because, hello, she's got the written bill of divorcement. Whereas if she comes forward with, her, with a claim that the husband has died, then it is simply her word, right? Now, again, we've talked, you know, for a long time now, we've talked about when she is to be believed and why she is to be believed. So it doesn't mean she's not to be believed just because she doesn't have any kind of written proof, but there is still that difference, right? And if you want to say, like, what's the level of you know, of reliability, or to what extent do we require a diff um, additional authentication? I, I would say, you know, or the missioner really says that's the difference. The writing, the the writing on the on the bill of divorcement is another um, proof. Let's say that that the divorce was supposed to happen, right? Like she didn't come forward and say I've gotten divorced. She comes forward with the physical divorce. The gemara here goes on and talks about well. Is it really only these five? Are there other women who are in this kind of like, um, I would say, where the man who has died is still like the star in their firmament? Are, are there other people who will be in that group who won't like this wife and therefore might, or or you know, again, who might have a vested interest in the outcome? And um, there's some debate over who that might be and and so on. Um, I, in the interest of time, we're going to jump over it, but it you know don't think. That the mission is the final word, they certainly explore. Is it really only these five? And and why do you have to say that we're talking about people hating their mother-in-law? But yeah, but this oh, is or consistent. hating their daughter-in-law. Yeah,
1: look, this is consistent of what has gone on the last few dapping. They're basically making decisions about how marriages are entered or dissolved based on certain of sort of like assumptions or understandings they have about human nature, how people describe death. How, what would people do if they wanted to get out of a marriage? What are relationships like between other family members? So it's just interesting to see a whole type of law of, law of halacha codified sort of based on these human nature assumptions. Um, I'll move on to the next Mishnah and then we'll wrap up this episode. Um omer mate, the So let's say one witness says this man died. The wife marries based on that testimony. Uva achad vamar lo mate, harazo lo And then another single witness comes and says, nope, he's alive. She doesn't have to leave her husband. Because it's basically one witness against one witness. Let's say it's a case where it becomes one against two witnesses. One witness says her husband died. She remarries. And then two witnesses come and say, he's actually alive. She needs to leave that second husband. Right. And let's say there are two witnesses who say he died. One witness comes later and says he didn't die. Right. And so here and she hasn't remarried yet. Even though she did not remarry, she is allowed to marry. So here the mission is basically saying we do give some differences between one and two witnesses. And the Gemara basically wants to understand why that would be the case. So it has a little bit of a discussion about this statement of Ula. And then basically the rest of the Gemara. Is going to go on to try to explore, right? Exactly, how do we understand uh, this? case, how do we understand the issue of one witness, right? What if a hundred people come up against that witness? What, 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 what? How do we really understand this issue of having, a, a, of having a one witness? Which, which I think is interesting because, on the one hand, the halacha wants to be lenient by allowing one witness, but I think the gemara is trying to explore. If you have more than one witness that contradicts that one witness's testimony, what are we supposed to do with that?
0: I'm finding it. I feel like the pace now, or maybe it's, you know, yeah, I want to say this is the pace where we've got this, like, you know, again, conglomeration of Mishnayot. We're going to go through the cases. The Gemara here is not long. I mean, it explores exactly what you want it to explore, but it's not that long. I feel like Yavamot is beginning to tie up the loose ends.
1: Yeah, you know, in terms totally of feel like they're just like the Gavar is just like we did all our talk and we're just tying it up right now. It totally does feel that way. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us and all major podcasts. Thank you to our Vinnie Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydron website. Let us know what you thought about this doc on our Talking Town Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.